Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Interview 3, A Letter to a Trinitarian. Today we've got a great show for you. Hugh Knowlton joins me to talk about how we should handle important doctrinal differences with other Christians. Hugh is a veteran Christian of four decades who is involved in the leadership of a group of Christians who meet in his home that recently left a traditional brick-and-mortar church. A couple of the other leaders who hold to the doctrine of the Trinity recently discovered that Hugh was a biblical Unitarian. That is, someone who believes the Father of Jesus is the only true God. When Hugh received a letter challenging his beliefs, he decided to hit the books and provide a response to each of these five questions. 1. Based on John 1.1, do you believe that Jesus is eternal? 2. Do you believe that Jesus is the Creator? 3. Does Isaiah 9.6 refer to Jesus when it calls him God and eternal? 4. Why does Jesus receive worship if he is not God? And 5. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, who is he? So often discussions like this generate more heat than light. Does that mean we should all just ignore our differences, forcing smiles and hoping that no one peers beneath our thin veneer of unity? Or should we charge headlong like a bull at the matador, eager to present our case and defeat all objections, whatever the cost? This interview will help you strike the balance between empathy and courage as Hugh shows how he stood up for his monotheistic beliefs in a gracious way that refused to forsake kindness while disagreeing on a core issue. Here now is our discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Restitutio. Today, I'm here with Hugh Knowlton, and we're talking about answering Trinitarian objections. Welcome, Hugh. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you, Sean. To get started, if you don't mind, could you just tell a little bit about yourself and your faith journey up to this point? We've been very blessed, Susie and I, to have three believing children who have spouses who believe God, and um, you know we're thrilled with that, of course. And we live in North New Jersey, where we currently fellowship with a lot of Trinitarian believers, wonderful people. We decided a few years ago to attend a local church when our son John and his wife Grace and kids decided to move in with us and stay with us. We decided, well, we should find a place to to worship. And uh, we found this church of people who were just very welcoming and loving. We continued fellowshipping there for a few years. And, you know, it was uh, interesting because immediately upon coming on a regular basis, they asked us to be a part of the missionary team, Susie and I. So we decided that we would uh, take a look at it, and we decided to participate. After a few months of going to monthly meetings, they said, oh, by the way, you have to become a member if you're going to be part of the missionary team. So we went to their two-hour little short course on the history of the church and what they believe. It was actually very well done, very well put together. But, of course, we anticipated that they would have a list of things that you would have to agree to believe in and then have to sign on the dotted line. So Susan and I couldn't do that for a number of reasons. 
of course, be, the most obvious is that we didn't believe everything that they do, <laughs> especially in regards to God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus. So did they have a statement there that said, I believe in the Trinity? Yeah, that God and, is and in three to, persons and you know the whole... You had to agree to that right? as part of the membership process. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's Typical. to be expected. Right, right, right. And I can understand why. And then... We didn't become members, and then when we were kind of called on the carpet, I decided to go and see the pastor, and I said, Chet, our history, we're f- from a non-traditional, a non-traditional Christian background, and we have non-traditional Christian beliefs. I felt that was the easiest, most honest, least offensive way of expressing our background. I didn't say non-Trinitarian. I didn't bring that word up. But I was never asked, well, what are some of my non-traditional beliefs? Or was I asked about my background? I explained that because of our past and associations with ministries who demanded allegiances, we just felt that that wasn't something we could do. I could have said, well, if you can show me in the scriptures where it's written, I I would do it. But, of course, I, I didn't even go that far. You know, he said, well, I'll go to the elders. And I don't know whether he ever did, but no one ever said I just said, listen, we want to serve, we want to love God's people, we want to serve, give glory to God and, and Jesus, and uh, serve his people. So they let us continue to serve. So that worked out that way. And now, then, How long ago was that when that conversation happened? A couple of years ago? Yeah, at least two or plus years. And then some rumblings started happening at the church on other yeah. issues right. related to healing and... Well, it's interesting because these are people just like from, uh, you know, people who love God, who are seeking. There's those people who are really seeking and want to see God work in a more dynamic way. People who really believe that God is a promise keeper and want to see God, want to see that God is more than just religion. There are those people who are good people who just want to come, be told what to believe, want to, you know, serve and do good works. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, but they, their hunger level isn't to the point where they really want to go further than that, which mm-hmm. caused division. So you're saying that one set of people in the congregation wanted to see God in a more active role, and right. another segment was content at, uh, with the status quo. and Following just, the traditions. Right. Right. Yes. So then what happened? Well, it, a lot of this centered around a very popular pastor, Bill Johnson, who has a number of different DVD classes and books. And someone might look at some of his things and say he's a little bit on the far outside. But, you know, he's somebody who, in a lot of ways, uh, is trying to help people walk in God's power. He has a class similar to what we would say simply the renewed mind, and he has a longer title for it, which I'm not going to tr- attempt to remember what it is. But you know, he had some very good points. But he, we were just talking before we turned on the mic about how the orthodox view of the Trinity is that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and then more recently, within the last hundred years or two. What is it, the kenosis theory that you mentioned, where when Jesus became a man, he surrendered or gave up his divinity. So he was a man. 
well, this is considered heresy by Orthodox Trinitarians. And this is basically what happened, because this Bill Johnson is an advocate of this kenosis theory. Just to be clear, the word kenosis means emptying. Emptying. It's just the Greek word for emptying. Right. So right. it's the idea that he emptied himself of his right. divine nature. Right. Now, it's interesting because when we first got involved in the church, we had our son, I mentioned, living with us, and he has three children. Actually, he had two at the time. One, their oldest, Jeremiah, special needs child who was born with a cleft palate, cleft lip, and other developmental issues. We sought prayer in the church, and the elders there, there were some elders who were very willing to come over anoint him with oil and pray. And these are people who believe that it's God's will for healing. A lot of people in this church may mentally assent to that, or they may actually say, because of the sovereignty of God, it's just not God's will at this time for whatever reason. Yeah, so these um, elders and the pastor came more than once, and they were great, they were just wonderful. This church has a uh, kind of a revolving policy. You're an elder for a couple of years, and you step down, and then you can be voted back as an elder. One of the elders who remained as an elder when this division in the church occurred ended up feeling that he was uh, all by himself, and he decided to leave. And I guess some of the issues were there are people there who are in, in positions of power and influence that just don't really believe that God works the way he did in the book of Acts and discourage those that were more, as I would word it, charismatic, which is a popular term. Susie and I gravitated to the people who are more charismatic, those who are more interested in seeing God work. Right. Not necessarily does everyone who I'm saying is charismatic speak in tongues, a lot, lot do, but... Um, we felt we were in a very interesting position of being able to serve these people, love them, because there's a lot of confusion. People want to know, but they aren't used to being taught, and that's where you know our background comes in to help. You know, there, there's ways of teaching people from the scriptures as to what's available and how to receive it. So, what ended up happening was a division, yeah, and a group ended up leaving the official church right and how did you get involved with being more of a leadership position with them well it's interesting because at that time this church had small groups home fellowships they called them small groups susan and i went to one on a regular basis and i would go to another one where these previous elders who had ministered to jeremiah were a part of and <clears throat> So when this division happened and these people were leaving the church, uh, I just felt compelled to organize a fellowship once a month, open up our home, and we had another wonderful um, family that had a very accommodating house. We also had fellowships there. We just figured this, this was a way where we, we could keep united or keep together have a monthly home fellowship of a larger size, maybe 20, 30 people. We haven't had as many as 40, but there, there's enough people that we could have a larger fellowship of maybe 40 or 50 people. Uh -huh. So I just networked with people by email, inviting people. 
it was great because every month we'd get together, worship, sing, praise, give words of encouragement. My good friend George Camella, who's from very similar background as myself, there's a story I should tell about him because Susie and I invited him and his wife Irene over for a sleepover for a weekend, and we said, oh, George, you need to come to church with us on Sunday. So he came, and he was very enthusiastic. And one of the ladies whose uh, house we ended up also having these larger fellowships at saw George and was very thrilled because George wanted to go right up to the front row of the church, and he's standing up praising, and his hands are in the air, and you know, most everybody else is not necessarily as enthusiastic in showing that. <laughs> yeah, George is a and, very enthusiastic. Yeah, guy. and uh, so she comes up to him and a- asks him where he lives, and it ends up that he lives like the same town, five minutes from their, her daughter and son-in-law, who have been very, who are believers but struggling. And from there, it took a few months, but George made this connection with this daughter and son-in-law, and. We, we had uh, an impromptu fellowship over at uh, Nedelin's house and Pierre's. And so George got involved, and, and George is more of an upfront person than I am. So he, was, he would be leading these fellowships, but he was, he was trying not to be the, the kind of leader in the sense where he was doing everything. He was just trying to facilitate. And we have these fellowships. It was mostly praise, singing, worship, you know. So then how did the, since you were still in the closet, so to speak, right? ever since you spoke to the pastor, and this group isn't necessarily privy to whatever you said to the pastor, Yeah, this group comes from a pretty typical evangelical background, right. and yet they're meeting in the house of a Unitarian, a biblical Unitarian. Right. How did the uh, conversation come up that you did believe differently as far as who right. Jesus is? So what ended up happening was George, at one of our larger fellowships, invited people to come over to Raymond and Anamika Thomas's home fellowship on Sundays. And they're from our background, a biblical Unitarianism. That's what ended up happening, that one uh, believer came over, and I was not there. I just heard what happened, that the guest speaker sh- made a comment about um, Jesus not being God to some effect and then so she she asked for more information and she actually was from my understanding was quite interested and quite wanted to know more and and someone in the fellowship who had been a Trinitarian minister who had converted so to speak to uh, believing in one God and that Jesus is, is God the Father's Son came up and shared his experiences so and she had glowing things to say about the fellowship, you know, as far as the praise and worship and the people there were there, things that were said. But she came home and talked to her husband, and her husband, who was a more adamant Trinitarian, I gather, told her that she couldn't go to that fellowship anymore. Now, the following week... And this is something you did not go to, so you're not sure exactly what was said. I'd, no, no, but I, you know, I, it's interesting how God works these things out. She did go back the following week. Now, when Raymond has fellowships, he kind of runs them all day. You know, when he starts, you know, <laughs> they, they, they go to lunch, and then some people will leave, they'll have lunch, and they'll kind of continue after. 
So she kind of sent knew that, and she came later in the day after lunch to tell Raymond and Anamika that she was not going to be able to attend anymore, which I thought was spoke loudly, you know, because I think she probably would have liked to have done that. Right. Uh, but this one lady who experienced this wasn't part of the church that we had been going to. wasn't you know was a friend of one of the people who were was a part of this church, and so. She got back to her friend, and the friend happened to be one of the elders who came to minister to Jeremiah. So there were two elders there that knew of this, and it's great because it wasn't something that was spread abroad. These were two gentlemen who had been almost demonized by the other elders in the church, had gone through a very judgmental process and who ended up leaving and they didn't want to do the same to us so and these are gentlemen who really have pastors hearts so the fellows named ben and larry came over wanted to meet with personally with me and george over to our house and we chatted a little bit specifically on the issue of jesus identity yes you know, as it was, it wasn't like they were coming over to drill us and that they had a list of questions. You know, we shared about our background, shared how we had grown since then to a place where we have elevated the position of Jesus Christ. I think Trinitarians, people who believe Jesus is God, immediately fear that you're just making Jesus a man if you say he's not God. I told uh, them that I've actually learned to disdain the phrase Jesus is not God because it doesn't, does nothing to explain how there is this connection that Jesus has with deity. You know, right. I'm not saying he's God, but there's a connection there. And that's a very offensive term. So, you know, I've been very sensitive being amongst Trinitarians not, not to be offensive. So anyway, uh, the the fellowship was profitable, but it it didn't end up being covering some of the specifics which Ben felt he needed to in an email that he addressed to me afterwards, which asked specific questions. Yeah, and that's really what I think we want to focus on here on out is these questions he brought up to you and how you decided to answer them. Right. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on for an interview is because of not only the content of what you said in response to Ben's email to you, but also the tone. Right. And essentially his email to you was, hey, we need to agree on right. Christ's identity if we're going to be co-ministers and working together yeah. in this right. leading these people. What he does is he lays out five main points. Right. And five questions. The, the, yeah, five yeah. questions. And the fifth one is really just, well, if you don't think Jesus is God, then who do you think he is? Right. So right. I don't think we need to worry about that one quite as much. But the other four are more standard right. objections that those of us who do believe that the Father of Jesus is the only true God— have to face from time to time and I thought we could just work through and hear your own yeah. response to these a little bit and 
how you arrived at your response as well, because I know you were doing yeah. a lot of research and I'm sure there are some books you'd like to recommend. So let's, let's just start with number one here. He's, he writes, John tells us in the opening of his gospel that the word was in the beginning with God and the word was God and became flesh to dwell among us. Do you believe that Jesus is eternal without beginning and without end? I want to share one thing. I, I, I answered the last question first, who I thought Jesus was, because I felt you know, right away I knew if you say you don't believe Jesus is God, then you know, people are afraid or concerned that you're diminishing Jesus. I put that to rest right away by addressing that. In Ben's email, he expressed a concern about agreeing on his nature, and I said, I don't see a similar concern shared by Jesus, Paul, or John, or the other writers in the New Testament. I'm not saying there isn't a concern, I just don't see a, a great emphasis on it, other than what I read in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter's reply, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I said, I think this is a great starting point for having common ground. His question to you is, what is the shared nature, right. which is a very non-biblical or extra-biblical kind of question to ask. Yeah. As you point out here, this is not the language of Jesus or Paul or John right. or anyone else in the New Testament. They just don't talk this way. Right. And so that should already tip him right. off, right. although it's kind of a subtle point here, that his whole line of thinking, his whole vein of thinking is itself foreign to the Bible and right. being imposed on it. Right. And, uh, you know, and I just said, I think in simple terms, God uses the simplicity of a father-son relationship to communicate family, intimacy, and similarity, and also distinct differences between himself and who I, who I believe is the father and his only begotten son, Jesus. Things that are similar are not necessarily identical. Right. And then with the first question of John 1, 1. Hold on. Before we get to that, talk to us about the research process you went through to arrive at these point. answers. Yeah, it's a good point. I, even before this even happened, while I'm going to this church, two or three, four years, however long it's been, you know, you hear things that you know are not true in the scriptures, especially if you're going to a Trinitarian church. I wasn't satisfied with myself simply to say in my mind, I don't believe that. I said to myself, well, if someone were to ask me, what, Hugh, do you believe, would I be able to articulate a good answer? And I realized that I felt I'd, I would fall short in that regard. Maybe in the past you had good answers that were on the tip of your tongue, but it's been a while since you articulated right. specifics to someone in this way. Well. Also, if all you're doing is fellowshipping with people with, who believe the same thing as you do, there's no need. Right, that's it. There is absolutely no need to sharpen your sword. In the year 2016, there is so much available for us who are of the persuasion that there is one God and His Son, Jesus Christ, available to us to work these difficult sections of Scripture uh, compared to what it was 30, 40 years ago. Not that this is a new subject, it's just that, you know, with the age that information is so readily available. I made a habit of building my library up, you know, the help of your website and, and others. As things, as subjects came up that were being taught in church, I would go to them and read a little bit and uh, say, okay, that's good. And But then with this 
confrontation, so to speak, with this being in front of me, having to respond to specific questions, I realized, okay, I got to really buckle down here and put my nose to the grindstone and uh, come up with answers. Did I want to do this? Absolutely not. I dreaded this. <laughs> so it took a lot of work. It was yeah. not easy. And but I say I dreaded it because it's massive. It's a ma Christology, the study of Christ. It's a massive subject. And as I said in, the, in my letter to Ben, you peel away one layer and you come to another layer below it. You answer a few questions, a whole new set of questions come up. But even though I, I dreaded it, it was pure love in me, motivated to really help these people understand the truth from the scriptures. With so many sources of information, the question, the challenge, the dilemma is how do I narrow, how do I sift all this down to, you know, where it makes it very simple, palatable, easy to understand without getting sidetracked, which is easy to do on the subject. So that's where I think God really helped me. Yeah. Can you call to mind any specific books that you would recommend? Well, John Shane Height's book on One Lord, One God. Bob Carden's book, The One God, The Unfinished Reformation. There's Anthony Buzzer's book. Then there's one that um, is called The Trinity, True or False, which was really very helpful as well by Broughton and Southgate. Excellent book. And I'm not including other books. I just don't remember them all. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, and that was a difficulty. I had little sticky notes and all these books, and you know, <laughs> it's like uh, back in the yeah. college days writing a research. Yeah. Well, paper. that's exactly what it was. My yeah. wife went away for 24 hours. I had 24 hours to write this, find the information, and synthesize it, reply, and then be done with it. All right. Well, let's get back into the actual meat of this epistle. And the first question is regarding John 1.1, 1, 1. so could you share? Yeah, well, of course, John 1.1 1, 1 is the, probably the favorite verse that Trinitarians want to go to. And every Trinitarian will read Jesus in that verse. The way I put it in my letter, I said, with your first question regarding John 1.1, 1, 1, the question that can be asked is, who or what is the word? The common answer is Jesus. But I said I have a problem with that because I have a problem with that interpretation, that understanding, because I don't see the word Jesus in that verse. It does not explicitly say Jesus. It is commonly supplied by inference. And right away, that's probably the most common thing about the Trinity is that there's no place in the Bible that explicitly says explains the trinity it's by inference you know they come to the scriptures already presuming that the trinity is true and they read that into the verses yeah yeah i think that's a really important point to make that the trinity is this really complicated theological construct that took the finest minds of the fourth century to concoct right and Really, most people don't understand, even, even those who believe in it, don't understand what exactly the Trinity is. And it takes more than just saying Jesus is God, the Father is God, 
the spirit is God and there's only one God. I mean, that's right. Right. the typical way people like to define it, but there is a lot more to it. They're all co-equal. They're all co-eternal. They're all co-essential. Uh, God has no parts. Each is, each is fully God, but each is not identified with the other. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but yet they are all God. And then it gets even more complicated than that because they have the doctrine of eternal generation, which is the idea that the Son is always in the process of coming out of the Father, and He doesn't have a definitive beginning because right. He's eternal. Right. And then the Spirit is somehow proceeding from the Father or the Father and the Son and it's not clear exactly what that procession means. And, I mean, what I just summarized there, right. it's, it sounds so foreign to the way the biblical writers right. talk. It's, it's mind-boggling. And I'm, I'm a simple guy. I'm not like you who has this in you and it just comes out because you've studied it, you've worked it. I had to put my head into this. And my wife, Susie, is always good at reminding me, just share what the scriptures say. Just go back to the scriptures, let the scriptures speak for itself. And well, I think that's <laughs> that's what you're trying to do here for yeah. John one, because yeah. in John one it doesn't say the Son. Right. It doesn't say in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God. It does right. not say that. Right. It doesn't say it. You're, not, what right. you're doing is you're showing, hey, this is how you're reading it, but this is not what it actually says. Right. What it says is the Word. Right. Not right. the Son. Right. Not Jesus. Not the second person of the Trinity. That's a simple point. It bumps out the typical vein of thought, the typical groove of thinking that he has about this, and now he's got to look at that and say, huh, I know a little bit of the after story here, but he didn't come back on any of these points that you answered. Right, right. I knew what he was going to do, and that's what he did. He brought up other things that we hadn't discussed. Right, but in a situation like that, you got to look at that as a victory. Right, oh, (laughs) He doesn't come back on a point. Right. You know, it's not like he's going to say, oh, well, you got me there. Well, it's going to bring up more points. Well, it's interesting because, you know, with that email, with these list of questions, I felt, well, now I'm on the defensive. I've got to defend myself. Well, and so when he comes back with his response, uh, I realized that I had gained somewhat of a victory in that sense because he didn't realize what kind of reply he would get from me when he asked those questions. I only wrote seven pages in Word. You know, it was like, try not to write a book. Right. He you also can't. did ask you four major questions. Then the yeah. fifth is, what, who is Jesus? Right. So I mean, this is not uh, something you can brush aside. I mean, people have written volumes. And as I said in the introduction of my letter, I felt this was a summary of what I believe. Right. Well, uh, let's move on to the second point. He asks, in the same place we are told that all things were made by him, the right. word, do you believe that Jesus is the creator? Yeah the logos was the plan of god because it was his creative self-expression that whole aspect of logos not being jesus this was something foreign to them an architect has a plan and then you see the structure you know as anthony buzzard would say there's a plan of the saint louis arches and then all of a sudden you see the arches and jesus christ was obviously the finished product as far as whether I believe Jesus Christ was the creator, I said no and yes. I said there's two answers. I don't believe that he was the creator of the original creation because there are ample verses. And this is, again, a very key point. You have to understand the difficult verses 
in light of the many, many clear verses. There are many clear verses that show that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth without any mention of the Lord Jesus. So I shared some of those references. Also, as far as whether I believe Jesus is eternal, I said Jesus has a beginning, Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on the rise. That word birth is, I believe, Genesis, mm -hmm. which is the same as what's used in Genesis 1.1, beginning. He's the only begotten. The whole subject of preexistence I touched briefly on as far as God knowing in advance, just like he knows in advance of us one day being here and believing in his word. So when you said no and yes, you mean no, he's not involved in the Genesis yes. creation, but he is yes. right. involved in the new creation. I said God delegated Christ's authority to create. In Ephesians 2.15, it refers to Christ creating one new man, his church, out of Jew and Gentile, and pouring out the gift of Holy Spirit to each believer. The Lord has created something new in each of them, that is, the new man, their new nature. I give scripture references. The church of the body of Christ was a brand new entity created by Christ out of Jew and Gentile. He also had to create the structure and position which would allow it to function both in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. I mentioned Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. The Bible describes these physical and spiritual realities by the phrase, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, which is in Colossians 1.16. Yeah, so you really have two points of new creation there you have the new creation in the sense of what he's already brought about right but then you also have new creation in the sense of when the kingdom arrives i believe the passage that alludes to that allude to a creative role for jesus in colossians 1 verses 15 through 17 and in hebrews 1 2 refer to the new creation not the old and to a new perfect order on earth when Christ returns to rule in the earth and eventually paradise restored. In Colossians 1.15, I think it's important to note that there's a translation that says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. How could he be the firstborn if he existed forever? The firstborn of all creation. This is where it gets exciting to see about our hope of the future. I said, I believe him to be the author, the firstborn of a new race of men and women, that we will be the second, third, and fourthborn. When he returns, we will receive a new body fashioned like his glorious body, which, of course, is in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. You know, he's able to change our vile body, that it may be fashioned unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to even subdue all things unto himself. If that doesn't turn you on, I, I don't know what does. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was hiking today, huffing and puffing, feeling pain in my joints, and I realized one day Christ is coming back. I'm going to have a body like his resurrected body. Amen. All right, let's move on to the Isaiah question. Okay. As he says, in Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah, we read that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah also calls him Emmanuel, God with us. We see both the words God and eternal in this description of the coming Messiah. Does this description refer to Jesus? Yeah. This question. I said there's a lot more than I could share, but time, you know, obviously was a factor. I said this verse, it's important to realize this verse gives five attributes of the Son prophesied by Isaiah. I got this from one of the books. 
I said, I believe it's a basic tenet of the Trinitarian doctrine that Christians should, quote, neither confound the persons nor divide the substance. Athanasian Creed, that's where that comes from. I do not believe that this prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus, is equating him to God the Father. I believe the phrase is mistranslated. Everlasting is actually the, the word age. I believe that Jesus will be called the Father of the coming age. Jesus, Father, eternal salvation. The words everlasting life can be translated life in the age to come. So right away when we talk about that he is everlasting Father, you know, we're really talking about that he is going to be the Father of the age to come. He's the Father of salvation. Yeah. It's not equating him to God the Father. Right. Well, you're a father. Right. I'm a father. This is one of his five attributes of his sonship. Yeah. I, I think of that f word eternal as well, that there are three different ways to think of that. One is something that doesn't have a beginning, but it does have an end. Another thing that has a beginning, but no end. And then a third way to look at it is no beginning and no end. Right. Depending on what sort of subject we're talking about with jesus he does have a beginning with jesus we get that from this idea of being begotten right that he does have a point in time where he comes into existence we see that in psalm 2 7 and hebrews 1 5 and other places as well and yet he's called eternal here so that could be a reference to the fact that he's going to live forever he's already received his eternal life He's the father of the age to come, the father of that eternal age. So I think he can be called eternal father in that he is the father of the faith. You know, we right. call Abraham the father right. of the faith. Nobody right. gets confused about that. And yet, and the father of salvation, like you said, and he, he is also eternal right. at this point, right. and he's immortal. So I don't think that's as much of a problem. And, you know, the Trinitarian position readily agrees with us on that right. because they don't believe that the son is the father. Right. They believe that they're both God, but they don't believe they're both identical to each other. So I think that is a little easier than the next point you make here about mighty God. Right. Because this Isaiah 9, 6 is one of the clearest places that does use God language of Jesus. So uh, give us your answer on, on well, this one. I said that uh, the word God... In the Hebrew culture, had a much wider range of application than it does in our culture. English makes a clear distinction between God with a capital G and God with a small g. But the Hebrew language, which has only capital letters, cannot make a clear distinction. So in the Old Testament, the original word for God, Elohim, is used of God, of course, in n numerous places, but also of angels, Psalm 8, 5, Psalm 89, 6. It's used uh, of rulers, judges, mighty men, Exodus 21, 6, Psalm 82, verses 1 through 26. And in John 10, 34, I said Jesus quotes Psalm 82, 6 in a way that confirms that the reference is to mortal men. It's also Elohim, God, that word is in reference to false gods and idols of the heathen, Exodus 12, 12, Exodus 15, 11, Exodus 20, verse 3. 1 Kings 11.33. I said, in, in its application to the Messiah is, in my opinion, no proof that it is the second person of the Trinity. A better translation would be mighty hero, divine hero. Both Martin Luther and James Moffat 
translated the phrase as divine hero in their Bibles. So that was how I answered that question. Another translation might be God's representative or right. God's agent, right? Because I think that's really the truth being right. expressed right. by calling him God. I, I don't think exactly. I don't think it means that he is of the same substance of the Father. I think what it means is that this child represents God, the mighty God, so well that people are calling him by his Father's name. And the other thing to keep in mind is how Hebrew names work in general right take the name elijah right the name elijah means eli which is my god and yah which is yahweh so this kid's walking around and his name is yah is my god right or you have eliab the father is my god frequently the hebrews called their children by the name of god right or incorporated the name of God into the child's name, and people never got confused about that. So I think it's helpful to make a distinction between naming a child, and Isaiah 9, 6, is, that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying there's going to be a child, he's going to be born, this is going to be his name, and then you get this long string of Hebrew, but we translate it into English so that we understand it. And it's like what we might call a name sentence. You see the same thing in chapter 7 with Emmanuel, and then which was a, actually a person that lived back in Isaiah's day, Emmanuel. And then uh, it gets applied to Jesus later. And then also in Isaiah 8, you have Meher Shal Hashbaz, which, which is a long Hebrew name sentence, which means quick to the plunder, speedy to the prey. Right. But you know, that doesn't mean that that kid is going to necessarily become a warrior and pillage people. What it means is that this child signifies that the battle is going to be won. So it's a sign child. You, you see what I'm saying? So it's, mm -hmm. it, I don't think it's really helpful to take everything so literally when it comes to a child's name. Right. Certainly Isaiah 9, 6 is unusual because it's the longest one. <laughs> right, right. But uh, I don't think it, we can use it in that way. Furthermore, I, I, I just want to add in here that the NET does a great job in their translation or their study note on this verse where they talk about how ancient people could be called God especially the king because he represents God and they point to other ancient Near Eastern documents that describe their kings in such a way and also we have Psalm 45 where a son of David it's not clear whether it's Solomon or some other king is called God right. just straight out right God and uh, that's Isaiah 45, 6. So this is something that is, for our culture, is totally unusual and unconventional. But for their culture, it was an accepted way of talking about it. As Jesus himself, you point out, Jesus himself does this in John chapter 10 when they question him, do you th really think you're God or whatever? And he says, well, didn't, doesn't it say that you are gods? Right. So well, this whole thing about agency is, is really important to understand, I believe, because it's, it does say that Jesus is the image of God, and if Jesus is the image, it automatically says he's not God, if you really think about it, because the image, you know, if one thing is the image of another, then the image and the original are not the same thing. Uh, you know, I, my heart goes out for Trinitarians. I understand they believe what they've been taught. Right. But there's an identity confusion there. Yeah, there's identity confusion, and I think a lot of it is, quite honestly, based on what you've told me about this group, just received tradition. Yeah. And here's the problem. We use this tradition word, but 
in reality, their tradition isn't traditional if you go far enough back. Right. So if you look in the New Testament, the Trinitarian tradition is not there yet. Yeah. If you look in the second century, it's not there yet. Right. You don't find it full-blown until the fourth century where all these things get worked out right. to the form that people agree with today. In fact, the creed most people quote in churches is not even till the year 381. Right. So I know today we would say, well, that's a traditional view, and, and you were saying, well, I'm non-traditional. I think in a sense you're more traditional than they are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's move on to point number four here. He asked you about revelation and how... Yeah, it was about worshiping. He felt that if you could worship... Oh, Jesus. John falls before the angel. Yeah, right. And then the question is, well, can you worship Jesus? Somebody sees Jesus and says, my Lord, my God, and it bows before him, referring to Thomas. Why does Jesus receive worship if he is not God? That's really his main yeah. question here. He, well, he says he sees worshiping Jesus as a declaration of his divinity. I said, I see worshiping Jesus as someone definitely worthy of worship, as Revelation chapter 5, verse 24 declares, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then also the Father and the Son are deserving of equal honor. John 5, 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him. Your understanding of worship then is that someone can rightfully worship Jesus. That's not idolatry or somehow infringing on the worship of God. No, I don't think that offends God one bit. No, you're giving worth to someone who gave his life for you and I. Uh, I don't have a problem with worshiping Jesus and not believing that he's God, the Father, Yahweh. Right. I mean, what is worship? It's, it's bowing to someone. Yeah. It's praising them or singing songs to them right. or honoring them in some way. And you think of like your own son. Right. If somebody wanted to honor your son, yeah. would, would that make you feel uncomfortable or jealous? No, it would make no. you feel proud as a no. father. No. Unless they were honoring him for something that you did right. and he didn't do. Right. And then it's a dishonest situation or right. it's confused or at worst it's malicious to steal, rob your glory and give it to him, right. whoever's doing this. So I think there is such a thing as improper worship of Jesus. Like if you're worshiping Jesus because he architected the plan for all of creation, well... You just took something away from God and gave it to Jesus that you really shouldn't have. Right. Vice versa. If you worship God for dying on the cross, you worship the Father for dying on the cross, that's also wrong. Right. You know what I mean? So I think right. there is a, a wrongful worship of Jesus, but then there is an appropriate worship for Jesus, which we see throughout the New Testament. Yeah. People run up and they bow before him and they say, sir, can you heal my friend or whatever? And then you have it in more of a religious context with the disciples a couple of times where they, they bow to him. But it's not over against God because Jesus is not in rebellion with, to God. It says in Philippians 2.9 that every knee will bow to Jesus and confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right. It's, it's really a, a good point to, to get clear. Uh, even though we could say that Trinitarians are, are not giving 
maybe the proper honor to God the Father. I think some of this is just my own opinion. I don't believe God has an ego, and uh, I think Jesus Christ will correct any of that in the future. And I think even today, he being the image of God, if he receives worship, misplaced worship, he reflects it back to the Father. I just don't think that God has a big ego. Well, that leads us into the last point, which is the tone of this letter. And if anyone wants to read the letter in its entirety, I'll have a link to it on the show notes for today. But the tone of the letter is very, it's non-combative, and it's at the same time uncompromising. And what I mean by that is you don't just wimp out and say, oh, we're all the same thing anyhow, and say, let's just hold hands and not talk about it. Yeah. I mean, that's a cop-out. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you don't go for the jugular and say, look, you're an idolater, yeah. you, you're worshiping a three-headed beast, right. and you're all going to, to hell. You're holding your ground. You give him some things to think about himself, too, right. at, at a certain point in here. And then you respond rationally and biblically to his, his points here. How, how did you arrive at the striking the balance on the tone for this? Well, I think that is prayer. I mean, listen, I told you that this was something I, I dreaded doing. I felt it would take a lot of time. I was found myself in a position where Susie helped, my wife helped me say, hey, listen, you just got to do this. And I had a 24-hour period. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be by myself. I'm going to do this. I had been praying about this, prayer of love for these gentlemen and for God to help me. Uh, I just think that the Spirit of God will always come through if you have your heart right. I was just trying to be empathetic and, and express my love and compassion for them in a way that would not be offensive. These are men who have known me for a few years, so they have seen the fruits in my life, which I was very thankful, number one, that there was time enough for that to happen and that they recognized that. Yeah, they couldn't just write you off as some wacko right. fringe person because they actually right. knew your character. A hardcore, more militant Trinitarian would not only cast me aside, not want to deal with me, not want to fellowship with me, he would be so bold as to say, I'm not even saved. Okay, so yeah. this is not the heart of these men. I don't know whether that, that's the best answer I could come up with as far as how no, to strike the great. balance. Yeah, you know. that was great. I do encourage people who might be interested to read the letter because, you know, it, this, there's a lot of points I would have liked to have shared, but time does not allow. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of other good stuff in here. And just uh, by way of conclusion, how was this received? Was there a long gap there where you were waiting day after day for a response or was it pretty quick and what did he say it took a week or so for ben to get back to us and by to my email was he was very thankful i think he, the first word that he wrote was wow in all caps saying you know i you know i don't think he expected an answer like what i provided him but uh the response that he gave to both of us as you had mentioned, Sean, he didn't really go back to any of the points that uh, we discussed or I brought up or answered his questions. He brought up two other points, which uh, I was fully aware that he might do that, which 
his reply basically was, you know, Jesus, the truth was crucified to restore relationship and that we could go back and forth uh, doctrinally. He kind of ended it there. He, he, he didn't consider this something that was worthy of stopping our fellowshipping and worshiping together, which I think is wonderful. Well, I think he also discovered something of your character and yeah. your the, the quality of your faith in the sense that you didn't come back with insults. Right. You didn't come back with, let's all get along. You came back with a lot of Bible. Right. And it seems like that made an impression on him right. that you are grounded in Scripture. You're right. not some New Age yeah. weirdo or a skeptical agnostic or, you know, yeah. he couldn't pigeonhole you in one of those positions. Yeah. You're, you're a genuine Christian brother who believes differently on the subject yeah. of Christology. Yeah. And so he brought up these two extra points. I would almost, w when you respond to him on that, bring up two of your own points. Yeah. You know, right. maybe the fact that Jesus is a Jew and as a Jew, he agreed with other Jews on who God is right. in Mark chapter 12. Or that he himself says the Father is greater than I, right. or that he was tempted and the Father can't be tempted with sin. Oh yeah. Or, I mean, there's so many different points that that you could bring into this, not to overwhelm him, but yeah. just to just to push the conversation a little yeah. further. Yeah. In the sense that this is not just you on the ropes here. Right. But <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing because you know you could you could easily win the argument. And lose um, the person. Right. You know, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. They'll still end up believing the Trinity. You could win it. But I was trying to win hearts, and that's I think I succeeded. But, you know, we'll see what, ha what happens. Well, uh, thanks for taking some time here today. And I think this is something that can encourage people and help them out. I think especially because you're not a professionally trained theologian or somebody with all sorts of degrees that you are... You know, an honest-hearted, Bible-believing right. Christian who's thought about these things for a long time and that you did take the opportunity to stand up for what you believe in, but to do it in such a way that express love. I think that is something that I will be able to help and encourage people oh, yeah. because I feel like there's a lot of biblical Unitarians out there who are in the closet in their respective right. Right. churches and... They don't know what to do. I got to say, this built me up. This made me more convinced of what I believe. You know, I feel better about doing it, even though I dreaded it. I'm thankful that I did it. Right. And your perspective, too, is so helpful and refreshing as well, that you're coming from a, a place of genuine empathy and love for somebody. Right. Rather than trying to set them straight, you actually care about these people, and they're... So far as you understand it, they're off on this subject, right. and not just by a little bit. They're way off on this subject. And right. so what does, what does a genuine loving person do? It's not pat them on the head, but it's to say, hey, take a look at this. Have you thought about it like this before? Because right. you know they haven't. Right. And this at least gives them a shot. And right. then God can work within them and, and shine his light on it. I mean, right. I can't even tell you how many stories I've heard in my lifetime of people who just with a Bible eventually came to see the light because they were open a little bit to it, and right. God worked with that. Right. So, I mean, that's, that could all be part of a bigger picture here. Yeah. But thanks so much for uh, taking the time today. You bet, Sean. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for taking the time to listen today to this interview. I just wanted to read out some comments that we've received on Restitutio. 
And the first one is by Paul Peterson, who commented on podcast number 47, Resurrection Implications, by Richard Hayes, an excellent lecture that discusses the importance of bodily resurrection, that belief, as well as the implications for practical living that this has. Let me read out his first comment here. He says, I had never seriously thought about, and therefore really appreciated, what Professor Hayes referred to as four practices of resurrection, practical ways in which we can live our lives in light of the reality of the future resurrection of our bodies. And then what Paul does is he goes on to list out Professor Hayes' four main points, including one, peacemaking, two, sharing possessions, three, reconciliation at one table, and four, Sabbath-keeping. And he pulls out quotes from Hayes' lecture that resonated with him for each of these four areas. And if you haven't given it a listen yet, I encourage you to check out episode 47, Resurrection Implications. Believe me, it's not the, the same old resurrection sermon you've heard a million times. This, this has got some edge to it, and I think it's worth your time to consider. Thanks, Paul, for pulling out those quotes and including the links to the cartoon Hayes referenced, as well as the song Carousel that he referenced, so that listeners can go on reststudio.org and check out those resources for some follow-up. Also, Brian dropped a comment on Offscript episode 12, Forgiveness. This was kind of interesting because Brian was actually there just before we recorded this episode and gave Rose a way to say goodbye in Hebrew. And after having listened to it, Brian made the following comment. He said, Some great points and certainly a relevant discussion for all Christians today. Thanks again for the conversation. I love the line, Unforgiveness is viral. Please keep these great conversations coming. Also, great pronunciation, Rose. Thanks, Paul and Brian, for taking the time to drop a comment. If you would like to add your voice to any one of these podcast episodes, including today's, please visit restitutio.org, and you can find the episode that you're interested in, and go ahead and drop a comment there. And also, if it's not too much trouble, please review us on iTunes. Uh, A number of folks have been commenting, and I'm so thankful for that, but the way we can expand our reach and appear higher in searches for podcasts is if we have more reviews in iTunes. So if you... So if you don't mind, please jump through the hoops on iTunes to write a review. It really means a lot. It really makes the biggest difference. And this way we can help others to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Last of all, if you're listening to this episode online, why not subscribe to this podcast on your phone or your tablet so that it automatically downloads new content when it becomes available. You can do that by visiting restitutio.org, and right on the top, I have a button there, subscribe to podcast, that explains the two different ways to do it, whether you are an Apple user or an Android user. So go ahead and check that out, and remember, the truth, my friend, has nothing to fear.